Welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I'm very excited today to be joined by Father Bonaventure Chapman. Uh, Father Bonaventure, welcome to Creedle. Oh, thanks so much, Zach. I'm excited to be with you all. I am excited to be with you. I have to say also, my wife has been prodding me for a long time to do this interview. We were just talking before I hit the record button about God's planning and how much I love that show. I found it because my wife found it first. She's a big fan of all the all the friars on there. And uh, every time you do an episode on something about movies and film, mm. she's like, Zach, you've got to get Father Bonaventure on your podcast. He'd be great. He'd love to talk about it. And, and you know, I, I have to say, after talking with you just for five minutes here, I, I agree. It's going to be great. I'm excited. Well, I'm ex- I mean, I have to say, no, the movies, I'm, I'm the movies are at the House of uh, Studies because, you know, when... <laughs> Men have to be entertained in some fashion, so communal <laughs> events. There's different things. Bridge, playing bridge is great. I love doing that, but not not everyone loves bridge. And so movies, like once in a while, especially for the big community events, and on the movies are, I'm in charge of this, probably because I volunteered at some point to do it, and that's how community life works. Probably the same thing with the family, right? You kind of volunteer. Yes. You know, either you volunteer, or you say, hey, this is a good idea, and someone says, perfect, put it into effect. Um, so I pay attention to, try to pay attention to movies. I've always, I've always loved them, and I think it's a... Although the genre is a bit being destroyed, but um, I, agree. I agree. But in any case, that's the, I'm I'm happy. I'm very happy. I always love with Father Gregory. We gen- tend to do the movie ones, and and uh, they're yeah, they're a lot of they're a lot of fun. Well, let's definitely add that to the discussion list okay. for today. We'll talk about some movie stuff. I'm going to read your bio to my listeners so they have an idea of who you are. Although I'm sure many of them have heard you on places like God's Planning. Mm-hmm. But Father Bonaventure, you hail from Buffalo, New York. You were born and raised in Buffalo. Are you a Bills fan? Bills Mafia? Uh, I, I I grew up as a Dolphins fan, actually. What? Um, Excuse me? <laughs> yeah, my brother and I, my, I have a twin brother, um, a okay. fraternal twin. He's really fantastic. He's a doctor, 101st Airborne flight surgeon, but now head Whoa. of anesthesiology. And he's the he's the impressive one of the two of us. Um, and we grew up there, and we were both were for twins, so we, he was a Bills fan, I was a Dolphins fan. So we'd wear it together into this rich stadium, the uh, a Dolphins jacket, a Bills jacket. And, uh, you know, it gets rowdy there. So my dad, God bless him, my dad at various points, I mean... Had to keep, you know, keep people. It looked cute when you were like six or seven, but when we were like, when we were like twelve or thirteen, apparently <laughs> I was supposed to know better. Yeah. So I remember my dad defending me and giving a, an incredible stare one time to a man at the Rich Stadium who had made some horrible comment. Wow. Um, and you're like, yeah, great job, Dad. Thanks. It's real. Yeah, the Bills Mafia take it seriously. They do. Uh, so did you take that that fandom sort of out of just like? oppositional interest like you just want you know to sort of... i mean yeah there's I, i've got a kind of cushy chair back there we could do some freudian stuff if you want i guess but uh <laughs> i don't know i i always liked dolphins i guess and dan marino I, was my I favorite do i did by players so uh marino was just a great court i don't know why i didn't like jim kelly um he's a great guy i don't know i suspect it's a bit of a bit of, i'm sure it was i've always been a bit of a contrarian or something yeah, there's a streak in that so i suspect that's what it was yeah that totally makes sense all right so born and raised in buffalo new york yeah uh twin brother which you already mentioned and older sister then you went to saint joseph's collegiate institute in buffalo then on to grove city college pennsylvania where you completed a bs in applied physics and a ba in christian thought two things that that don't normally go together but probably should more often should um both but invisible stuff that governs the universe yeah and then you taught a year of high school in orlando uh did you catch a dolphins game when you were down there not, no, not too far. at that point, I was a Bills fan. Okay. Once Marino right. retired, it was over with. That was like he was the sufficient sufficient condition to being a, a uh, Dolphins fan. So when he right. retired, I just switched my allegiance immediately to Buffalo and have been a Buffalo fan ever since. Got it. Okay. And then after a year in Florida, I went off to Wycliffe Hall, which is uh, one of the permanent private halls of Oxford University, where you studied yeah. for the Episcopal priesthood in the Episcopal That's Church. Right. That's right. Uh, completed your MTH, a Master's of Theology in Applied Theology. <laughs> but 
uh, problem arose there in your pursuit of the Episcopal ordination because in your third year at Oxford, you converted to Catholicism. Yeah, that's and right. then um, returned to America to teach Catholic schools in the D.C. area for two years and then entered the Dominican novitiate. That's and right. uh, I guess I, I don't see years on here, but uh, you are now a doctoral candidate in philosophy at the Catholic University of America. So uh, maybe you can fill in the gaps for me if there are gaps to be filled in. in that, yep. Just, in that uh, yeah. So you built six years of formation stuff. Um, and then um, so 2010, I entered the vision. 2011, got to the House of Studies. Boom. Um, 2017, ordained a priest uh, and finished... Uh, just more degrees, whatever. And then I uh, taught at Providence College, taught philosophy, and was assistant chaplain there uh, for two years uh, before coming back here to D.C. to work in, and do philosophy uh, at CUA, Catholic University of America, um, and will be finishing, God willing, Deo Valente, uh, defending this spring. So just finishing my dissertation as as we speak. Not as we speak, but I mean, more or less yeah. within hours. <laughs> not not in this moment, yeah. Yeah, um, no. I was thinking about it though. I've uh, I've always wondered uh, this uh, when I talk to people like you who had some level of formation before becoming Catholic, and in your case, entering a religious order. Yeah. Yeah. Are you sort of like grandfathered in? Do, do, does your do, does the superior or the, uh, you know, um, whatever, the director yeah, of formation you know, like ask you what you've already studied and review your transcripts? You do. And now the trick, yes, yeah, you do a little bit of that. Now the trick, of course, is um, <laughs> I was a Protestant seminarian, and yeah. in Protestant seminary, the structure is. Um, it's almost like reverse in the Catholic thing. And you start with scripture as the base. That's super important, the word of God. And then you go on to theology, biblical theology and concepts and theologizing about scripture and such. And then if you're nuts or have extra time, you might do some philosophy. But that's yeah. as a side thing, right? Now, in the Catholic work, this is a Catholic world, this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think you'll get it. Um, you start with philosophy. You mm-hmm. start with the base, right? Nature. And then you do theology, grace nature and grace grace built on nature sort of thing and then you know if you like it you might do some scripture stuff so it's like the reverse now obviously the scripture you're getting in there but but there's this kind of reverse where philosophy fits Mm -hmm. so where a lot of my tons of my stuff was scripture we don't actually take a lot of scripture in seminary uh compared to what i did as a protestant for instance we take a ton of philosophy but i didn't take really any philosophy when I was a Protestant, because that's just unaided reason, and that's fallen, and therefore work of the devil, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so while yes, I think with some formation coming in, there's often overlap that helps there. For me, there wasn't that. There was enough. There was some I got out of some courses, but there was still plenty to do because of the different way that you train for a Catholic priesthood versus in a Protestant Protestant seminary and Protestant priesthood. Can you say more about that and why the why the Catholic approach does tend to emphasize philosophy? sort of uh, as a prior to theology because if if i'm a protestant mm-hmm. listening to you if i put myself in my shoes 10 years ago for example i listened yeah. to you say this and i'm like well no wonder he went off the rails because he stopped studying yeah, yeah. scripture right so yeah. like say more about that approach yeah no i think it's um so i mean part part of the you want to say well of course the theology is based on scripture so when mm-hmm. i'm studying like thomas aquinas nature and grace what's thomas studying well thomas is using the scripture stuff and saint augustine what's saint augustine using he's using scripture basically so there's this like layer effect you know you have the the apostles and then the church fathers and then the medieval scholastics and that's what you're kind of when you're doing catholic seminary theology as opposed to say Protestant seminary theology looks like grab your favorite theologian, yeah, Karl Barth, Moltmann, you know, it could be anybody, right? Mm-hmm. And he is doing his own thing, kind of. 
Whereas Catholic theology is the tradition, which has been like built up over time. So in a sense, the scriptures, you could say, baked in, it's already there. So it's not like you're saying scripture versus theology, right. but pure biblical exegesis in the modern terms of looking at this, that's been done because the church fathers, of course, have been spending all the time with this. The medieval scholastics were writing, Peter Lombard is working on his theological book, and then, of course, Thomas Aquinas, building off that, which are questions responding to scriptural. So it's already, it's in there. You know, it's, so scripture is already in the theological kind of project, um, you could say. It's just not as ex- made it as explicit as you might in the Protestant world. So it's not, it's just like, for instance, you might say, oh my gosh, you know, medieval Catholics didn't know anything about the Bible because they never read, they didn't read it. You know, they couldn't understand and they didn't have printing Bibles and so great for Gutenberg and the Reformation. But anyone who's been to a cathedral, for instance, uh, a national shrine or go to one of the cathedrals of Europe, it's covered. It's yeah. the whole Bible in stone. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need and it. Glass, you can be looking yeah. around the whole time. It's, you've got the whole, so it's silly to say, like, oh, they didn't know any of the biblical stories. No, they've actually seen them. You know, they probably know them better in some ways than, than we do by just hearing them. It's just them. that the mode of engagement is different. Yeah, that's right. And then, the, so that, so the first thing, the first thing to say would be is to, to calm, say, a Protestant worry about this is that don't worry, scripture's there because it's theology isn't this kind of eccentric individual guy like mm-hmm. i follow john calvin or i follow luther or, i follow this like a guy who's kind of re rewriting the book it's the passed down tradition which has been built on this built on this foundation of scripture yeah. and the second thing is that um catholics just do believe that nature matters that that god created the world good and that the fall was not uh, did, was not totally destructive, you could say. And that if that's true, if we're not, if the fall didn't change us in our natures from like animals to squids or something, right? Then um, it'd be good to know about the nature thing because if it's not going away, we should know it. So the Catholics have always had a sense of, Catholic tradition has always had a sense of both the scriptural revelatory aspects, but also uh, reason as being an indicator of something true about the world. That creates, of course, of course, secular sacred distinctions and all mm-hmm. the fun parts that Catholics have been working out for 2,000 years about how politics relates. I mean, this kind of fun stuff, right? In the sense yeah. that Protestants don't really have much fun because you just say, like, get out of here, <laughs> you know? Um, it's not, there's no, there's no fun in that. There's really fun in trying to figure out, well, how, do, what does a Catholic politician or a statesman look like? Because you have both reason and revelation. In Protestantism, you just kind of have revelation and secularism, just have reason. It's much more fun to have two of them, Yeah, you know? It seems also true. That's interesting. But it's and, fun. and it's it's related to something I saw yesterday. We have we homeschool our children here and hmm. we someone gave us this um, Protestant textbook we're not using. But it, it fell open yesterday because I think my son was playing with it or something. Um, fortunately he's not able to read. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, there's this paragraph that it fell open to that was talking about the uh, Reformation. Yeah. And I sent my wife this screenshot that I just pulled up here because it said uh, basically, the Reformation is responsible for so much of the scientific advancements that have happened since then. Quote, yep. prior to this time, the Roman Catholic slash Greek worldview, that's that's like a combined worldview. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Book, Roman yeah. Catholic slash Greek uh, prevailed, <laughs> which combined materialism and mysticism. With the Reformation stress on the sovereignty of God over all things, including every aspect of creation, men yep. were able to explore God's world with the confidence that God created it in an orderly fashion. I thought that was that a pretty interesting fan. interpretation that's of fantastic. events. There. Did you memorize that or rereading that? <laughs> no, no, no I, I'm rereading that. Oof, I was worried. Um, yeah, that's great. Wow, yeah, that's cool. Materialism and mysticism. That's amazing. That's so cool. Um, yeah, no, that's all true. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> no, no comment on that. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, Protestants are going to say what Protestants are going to say. God bless them. They're great. Yeah. I have nothing. Look, um, I, I, I love Protestants. I mean, I, I was yeah, chair let's, of... Yeah, let's, let's well, talk I was, about that. I was going to yeah. say I was... Um, 
Uh, when I got here, of course, we have this kind of ecumenism thing here, Washington mm-hmm. Theological Consortium, and, and we have to send representatives. Here being CUA. CUA, D- yeah. Dominican House Studies, the kind of group okay. in D.C. And so you have the different seminaries, you know, the Protestant seminaries, so Lutherans and Reformed and Baptist and and all of this. And then, uh, and then the Catholic, a few Catholic groups, but Dominican House, we have the biggest group, you could say. And so you have to have, you have to send representatives to this thing. Um, from the different seminaries. And of course, if you're electing, we elect in the student, the studentate or among seminarians, like you're going to send the guy who's a Protestant convert because no one else wants to talk to Prots. So that's um, you. So I go and I end up being president <laughs> of this thing. Um, but I was always, a, but I was so disappointed because almost all the Protestants I met, I was always waiting for someone who was a magisterial Protestant, you mm, know, a kind of yeah. an Anglican who cared about the 39 articles and really cared yeah, about yeah. these things or a Calvinist who, who was really just... Go with Westminster Confession and Synod of Dort and all that stuff. Yep. The distinctives or fight off whether you're a Scottish Presbyterian or a Grand Rapids kind of you know New Amsterdam Presbyterian, or a Lutheran who was like a Missouri Synod guy. It was really yep. nailing, nailing down the the you know con, you know the Concord documents and and all of that and uh, Book of Concord I should say and the Augsburg Confession. I mean really rich rich doctrines and rich bases of which to interpret the Scripture from and the tradition. And I never met one. Wow. It was just not interesting. They were just kind of boring social workers, as my experience. And good yeah. people, no doubt about it. But like revelation and theology and tradition had no claim on them. It didn't exert any friction. And that's, I mean, the part of the deal is, it, it struck me as deeply unprotestant because if you're a Protestant, you expect mm-hmm. that you should be frictioned at all times, in a way. You live, you, you are, because of fa- your own fallenness and the world's fallenness and the revelation of Christ, there should be this kind of constant friction and battle. Sure. Um, so if things are just going okay, and you're just using secular sources all the time without any pretty any serious problems, and you're not saying things that are that different than than what a progressive would say, you should be deeply suspicious. You know, Protestant more than a Catholic on this. But I was, it was all, I always got excited each year started, and I thought, oh, oh, I'm gonna get a cool, I'm gonna get a Calvinist. This would be so great. We'll actually have discussions. Um, yeah. False. Wow, that's you know, too bad. Well, I wonder, and I wonder, this could be, this would be interesting. Um, I wonder if, if uh, mainline Protestantism, finding a mainline Protestant in 50 years will be similar to finding a Quaker today. Mm. They'll exist, but they'll be kind of out of, pl- I just think the mainlines are collapsing yeah. uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but that's, yeah, well, that's, that's where you found yourself, right, as, a, as someone studying for the Episcopal priesthood. But, but yeah. talk me through your journey prior to that, because you went to Grove City. Were you a, were you a you know, card-carrying PCA member when you were Not Grove just a City card-carrying or? PCA member. I mean, a license-plated PCA member. I mean, I okay. was, uh, my license plate was, J, was John Calvin, a vanity plate. Really? Um, so, yeah, I call it highway <laughs> evangelism. Um, of course, this is such a dumb idea, because um, not because John Calvin was a bad person, uh, necessarily, but because whenever anyone asked you what that meant— you, you know, I remember my optometrist one time was like, "Oh, who's John Calvin? <laughs> what am I going to explain to? He's not. He's not a Christian. He doesn't know. You know, I'm going to evangel. I've got to like, I got to do a lot of work to explain this. It's, it's hard. To what did, what you, to was say. it? Just Calvin, or what did your license plate J. actually N. say? J N Calvin. Yeah, J N Calvin. Calvin. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So wow. yeah. So no, I was. Amazing. No, I mean, I love. So I went there as a Calvinist. Um, okay. And. Uh, and, uh, you know, worshiped the Presbyterian church there. But on, it was funny, the first weekend of at Grove City, because you do, you do weekly mass, you do masses, sorry, you do services every 
every two days there is something that's a big okay. mandatory services like in the university the college chapel yeah exactly or, in the yeah. college chapel and uh, so you have tuesdays and thursdays you have to be there you have to chapel attendance cards you have to turn in but on sundays you go out to your churches um and to individual the regular churches and i remember my first sunday you had to figure out where to go and i went to the catholic line i met the catholics at this flagpole outside of harbison chapel and uh and uh and they said oh what parish are you from i said oh no i'm protestant and they said, uh, "Are you?" And I said, "No, no, but I come. To, I'm, I'll go to mass with you guys and receive communion, of course. But I mean, I would go to, I would go to mass because I was I went to a Catholic boys' school, and uh, I always knew the Catholics. Buffalo's Catholic town. I always knew Catholics were right. It was just a question of whether there, anyone was right her, right? Mm. I always knew the Catholics were were the Catholic Church on sexual teachings, its commitment to morals, absolute truths, all this kind of thing. It was great. You can't." Can't they say that with Catholic Church? Whatever is negative about it, and there's probably plenty of negatives about it. Of course, um, it has things that no one else has. It has even if you have to respect, even if you're not Catholic. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always thought they were they were right, but I thought there was just something kind of better. But I found my I was I felt at home in the Catholic Church. You know, I would go and usually during Grove City years, I would go to Saturday Vigil Mass, uh, and then Sunday I would go to my Protestant church. But I always be mm. at Saturday Vigil Mass, and my I remember I had a girlfriend at one time at that point. And that was a shock. Um, and, uh, and she was a Orthodox Presbyterian and I think she came along. God bless her. Um, even though it must've been extremely bizarre, I'm sure yeah. I explained it to her. It didn't seem bizarre to me, you know, but like, oh yeah, of course we go to Catholic mass, you know, worship Satan. No, they're not doing, they're fine. They're good. They're just different. Um, so anyway, I was there. So Catholics were always there. I was always looking for something writer and Presbyterian was great, but I, I missed the sacraments, you know, mm. I missed the, yeah. the richness of that. I always believed in the real presence. It just seemed like the Eucharist was, was important. Um, and so I kind of wandered up the candle, as I like to say, um, and Anglicanism seemed to be a beautiful via media, to say, to use John Henry Newman's mm-hmm. terms, um, because you had both Catholic liturgical practice and history tradition, yeah. but you had Reformed doctrine, you know, the nice solid stuff, none of this namby-pamby, you know, yep. Marian saint stuff and all this kind of thing. And like, you really could, you could dig down and go for double predestination, all that kind of stuff. And, yep. um, and so, so I, I thought... Anglicanism was the the perfect fusion, the Aufhebung, yep, to use a Hegelian yep. term, and uh, so I I joined the Anglican Church uh, uh, at an interesting time, of course, um, mm-hmm. because of the. I mean, yeah, what year was, was this? Kind of, it was two thousand five. Yeah, so that's yeah, like so right, Gene Robinson right had just the year after. Yeah, yeah, Gene Robinson had just gone through, and so they, they were having all this. Uh, so a homosexual bishop was ordained in America. Presiding bishop was a woman. Um, there was a lot of craziness going on. The church was kind of collapsing around itself, and. Yep. But in America, the the Anglican Church looks like a Catholic Church. It's not. It's hard to if you go into an Anglo Catholic Church, a kind of traditional Anglican Church, mm-hmm. Episcopal Church. It looks a lot like Catholics. But I went over to Oxford to train at the college there, um, and I realized that that's not what Anglicanism is. That's just a weird version of it. It turns out like I mean, I was with in classes with people who said I'm never going to celebrate the Eucharist because that would take away time from the, from the the homily. Wow. That was for me like. So how are we getting, let alone the female, woman, female, the male, female ministry kind of question, but just even the men? Yeah. How, are we really ordained to the same church? Am Mm -hmm. I the same? What is that? That's incoherent. And so I realized that, like, eventually in Oxford, I remember waking up one morning and just realizing that I had no object. I always thought Catholics were right, but I had objections and I thought there was something better. And I woke up one morning, and I can still see it clearly. Uh, in my in my room there in Oxford at Wycliffe, and I just woke up and I said, I don't have any, I don't have any more objections to the Catholic faith. I have plenty of objections to Anglicans. I don't have any objections to Catholics. And if you don't have an objection to the Catholic Church, 
If you don't have a reason to be out of the Catholic Church, then that is a reason to be a Catholic. It's different. If you yeah. don't have any objections to, to Baptists, it means nothing. If you don't have any objections to Methodists, it means nothing. If you don't have any objections to, to Roman Catholicism, then it means that you ought to be that because of Jesus' call in John 17 mm-hmm. sort of thing and the tradition. Right. Yeah, so that's a kind of pocket yeah. story. So we have some significant overlap in our stories here, including mm. the time at Oxford. But yeah. uh, I was Anglican. I was confirmed in the Episcopal Church. Oh, what And uh, I was confirmed in Colorado. Okay. Under um, at the guy at the name at the time the guy's name was Bishop o- O'Neill mm-hmm. would have been confirmed I don't know mid two thousands I guess um, oh, about the same time as me then uh, is that right hold on no I'm sorry I was confirmed by a Bishop Winterode also in Colorado but I think he was the guy who confirmed. anyway it doesn't really matter but it was in Colorado somewhere yep. but I was confirmed in the Episcopal Church um, and in college. I just had a sort of period of, of, of exploration, including what I would probably call um, maybe even agnosticism. I don't think I ever doubted that there was a God, but I certainly was just like, how do we worship this God? Yeah. I don't exactly know. There, there are, Protestantism is a huge tent. I don't know exactly oh, yeah. where I fall in this giant web of churches. One of them might be right. Maybe there's, you know, there's also the Catholics and Orthodox out there. So anyway, I went through this kind of long term period. I came out the other side of that. Basically... Uh, reformed. Mm-hmm. And so I was attending a PCA church at the end of college um, and sometimes went to an Anglican church because mm-hmm. that's what I, that's what I had been confirmed. Yeah. Um, and then went to England and was thinking when I got to Oxford, oh, I'll be in the, like, this is going to be the heartland of Anglicanism. I'll yes. find just beautiful, beautiful liturgies and like really rich sacramental theology. False. And, and yeah, very false. Got there and uh, we were going to St. Ebbs, which mm-hmm. you and I were connecting beforehand. Yep. You, you've you been to St. Ebbs. And um, wonderful people there. We made some really good friends at St. Ebbs, but not a, not a very sacramental theology whatsoever. They would do like Bible studies with John Piper books. Yep. Um, so super reformed. There was there was really no daylight between St. Ebbs and um, like a solid PCA church in America. Yeah. And yeah, I was yeah. just like, what? what? This is really, really strange. Well, PCA, even in America, PCA is even more liturgical. I might even say, the, no difference between that and say... Um, an OPC or something, or, yeah. or because the PCA sometimes you'll find they even have like collects. That's and, true. And that's true. Something. But at Saint Ebbs, I remember I was I was not just at Saint Ebbs worshiping, but that was my ministry assignment. So I was in charge of leading their 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 version of Alpha. They don't call, they call Christian okay. Explored because Alpha has yep. speaking in tongues and they have like worship John Calvin instead. And so you just kind of swap that out. <laughs> um, I was fine with. Uh, and and so I was leading this, and I I had to at some point at some point tell the uh, the head of the the parish, like the pastors, and um, now I'm I'm actually converting to Catholicism. Um, I don't think this will affect what I'm teaching. I'm happy to teach here and still do this kind of thing because I still believe basically all the things I believe, sort of thing. I, mean, I don't think it'd be a problem. And he said, "Well, maybe, maybe not, though." And yeah. I'm, I'm, okay, yeah. fair enough. Good for you, my friend. So <laughs> we had a we had a similar discussion because my wife and I were involved in the young adult uh, student yeah. ministries there, like okay. especially the international student ministry. And we actually preemptively, like, basically stepped down um, because sure. we were converting to Catholicism. Yeah. But it was it was not a pleasant conversation. And yeah. the yeah the staff member who we were working with and who had been pretty close to up to that point was just not thrilled about it. And yep. um, it was a hard conversation for sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. And that's but talk to me. So okay. you said you were, you got to a point where you had no more objections. But how yeah. did you know as a license plated Calvinist, I would think you yeah. had some pretty strong objections to um, uh, well. Certainly, some pretty strong opinions, probably about the nature of grace, that don't necessarily square with sort of the uh, the doctrine of the church on that front. So, um, not to, to say nothing of you know like 
Calvin's, you know, sort of pneumatic presence, Eucharistic theology mm. versus the churches. So how did you, um, yeah, how did you resolve those? Okay, well, um, we'll do the Eucharistic one first. Um, I mean, C- Calvin was actually pretty strong in the Eucharist. Um, it depends well, how I, you read. I will read. say, just real quick, as a quick insert here, uh, I did an interview with um, Father Blankenhorn, Father Bernard oh, great. Blankenhorn, yeah. uh, three months ago, probably. Um, although this year's been a vortex, maybe it was longer. But yes. he actually, he walked through a lot of these sort of competing Eucharistic theologies and said he actually thinks that Calvin's is pretty good and if he were not Catholic and he had to choose one other than, you know, what he obviously thinks to be true as a Catholic, uh, it would probably be Calvin's because he actually said, like, he he thinks there's a lot, there's a lot of meat there. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of there there. Mm. And it's actually pretty strong as far as Eucharistic theologies go. Great. So I thought okay, that, so I, I won't revisit that then. Um, but I would say I was always, the Calvinist the theology of the Eucharist I always had was through the high church Calvinist, John William Nevin. Um, okay. And others in the in this that reading him as as not having a spiritual real presence, but a real spiritual you know like a, a spiritual real presence as opposed to a real spiritual presence. So people read Calvin's doctrine the Eucharist like Zwingli's doctrine. It's not that. It's just not Got that. It. It's more Got significant. It. It's not consubstantiation or transubstantiation. Right. But it's you know at the end of the day, when I look at that, is that Christ? And Calvin says yes. I think yes. that's that's how I, that's how I read him, and that's how the tradition I was in. So that's not as much a problem. The nature and grace one. That's it. I mean, I'm a Dominican, so uh, now we're just crypto Calvinists. <laughs> I mean, I remember I intended to be when I converted. I was trained by when I was at Oxford. A lot of guys I was working with were Jesuits, so I intended to be mm. a Jesuit. Um, I figured I would be a Jesuit. My directors were Jesuits. All this, um, and so when I came over, I went to a Jesuit formation uh, weekend, then a Jesuit retreat weekend, mm-hmm. vocations kind of event, and I was there, and just something wasn't clicking. There's nothing wrong. With, I had nothing particularly in that moment to say about Jesuits. Um, and, but it just didn't seem, and I thought, gosh, what am I going to do? And so I kind of asked this other guy that was with me, Hey, who else are you dating? Who else are you looking at? You know, you know anyone else? Um, and he said, uh, he said, oh, I met some Dominicans up in New York and it had never occurred to me, but then all of a sudden this light bulb went off, remembering the 1600s, the De Auxilius controversy, the controversy mm-hmm. about grace, where it was the Jesuits versus the Dominicans and the Jesuits were calling the Dominicans crypto Calvinists and the Dominicans were calling the Jesuits crypto-Pelagians. Um, yep. And I just remembered like going, oh, crypto, the Dominicans are just Calvinists? Well, I can, they must be close there. And so, I mean, Thomas Aquinas is not John Calvin on grace, but he's not. Not John Calvin. Not John. I mean, <laughs> look, I, there are distinctions that need to be blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's fair yeah. enough. But they are pretty close. Yeah. You know, I remember going to my, uh, my early class, class in theology to read the Summa. Question 23 is predestination, I think, of Thomas's, the prima pars. Mm-hmm. And for most of the Catholic students in there, my brothers, they're, they're going in thinking, oh my gosh, how can I possibly believe what Thomas says about predestination uh, and, these, and the, the, you know, the, the, effect, the effectualness of grace? Um, and I was going into it thinking, well, we'll see if Thomas is strong enough. You know, let's see if he actually believes in God. <laughs> and you, you know, and you leave 23 and it's like, yeah, you're okay. Good to go. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't get the double, but that's all right. It's probably right. okay to not have double predestination. I, I think um, so. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So the grace stuff, I mean, in some ways, yeah, Calvinist, that's the Dominicans, Dominicans bane is being called Calvinist because we're just determinate, theological determinists. We just follow yeah. him. You know, he follows us, you could say in many ways. Yeah. On that, so the grace stuff never. The difference in Calvinism is just the kind of the low church Calvinism kind of stuff. The view of the the non sacramental priesthood, I think, is is certainly different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had always been at- attentive to the more sacramental forms of things, in any way. And so 
the Calvinism that I was that I was in favor of was always a kind of a sacramental Calvinism stuff coming from um, Grand Rapids Circle area kind of stuff, a more metaphysic, robust Calvinism than say the yeah. biblically inclined Calvinism of Hodge and Warfield and uh, the Princetonians in the early twenties, okay. early time. Gotcha. Have you encountered anyone named uh, or a scholar named Doctor Taylor Patrick O'Neill? He, um, oh, okay. he has a, he has a, you should read his book. It's actually published by CUA. Uh, okay. So I'm sure there are a few copies of it in the library there. It's a new one just published last year or maybe the year before grace predestination and the permission of sin. Oh, um, he teaches at, uh, I think it's called Mount mercy college in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had him on the show a while back as well to talk about his book. And he goes in depth into the day Auxilis controversy. Sure. And I share with him that basically before I read that book, I was, I didn't know it, but I was basically a Molinist and uh would just say like of course there's no predestination we're catholics that's what the that's what the calvinist that's not molinism etc good lord man molinists are hardcore predestinarians say more about that well i mean molinists molinists still believe that god's entirely in charge and the only reason that anyone is going to heaven or hell uh is because god chooses them to do such a thing yeah um, yeah certainly and i think i mean that's the catholic position right because that's right even, yeah well even this is the, i mean this the, the church that the solution of the day exilius controversy which was molinism versus versus uh was to condemn neither was to say guys are both okay basically yeah Hold down you know and uh yeah so i think people confuse molinism uh with like open theism or they think molinism yeah. makes god passive i used to right. think this i used to think that the dex of this controversy was a question of whether god is god or not dominican mm. said he was jesuit said he wasn't god right. um but then when i started reading date concordia and spending a lot of time with molina um i actually think no he's He's he does he's not God isn't passive for him. Yeah, okay. he just has a weird account of how God knows our the free middle knowledge acts. thing. Yeah. yeah, when you really d- dig down, I'm a philosopher, and you dig down to the metaphysics of it and the future conditionals and the, and the kind of modal logic involved there, he just believes there's a strange account of, of how God knows this, calls it super comprehension, which we balk yeah. at. But he's okay. They balk at the fact of what we have we have cause our version of causation uh, for a Dominican thing. We say God causes all acts. Right, are, right, and he causes your free acts, and he causes them mostly. Right. He yeah. causes your free acts to be free. And to be honest, when it comes down to it, when you say God knows your free acts versus God causes your free acts, they're both weird. Yeah. You're going to come up with a weirdness. The question of where you want to bite the bullet on, yeah, you know. And true. Dominicans that's tend true. to bite the bullet on the kind of we're willing to say he causes modally, whereas a Jesuit's yeah. like, uh, freedom's super important. Let's say he knows modally. Yeah, that's. That's fair enough. But anyway, sorry. I'm just No, no, give, that's give I appreciate quick, that detail. No, quick. Yeah. I, I just want to I think people give Molina, Molina and Molinism a bad time. It might be wrong, but it's he's not he's not the, he's not open theist and I don't think he I don't think in my reading of him he has God as a passive. He's a strongly predestinarian as a Thomistic account is more or less. Yeah, well, I think I mean I, the church obviously I was I was when I was researching this, you know, a year and a half ago, I was reading through Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of the Catholic Dogma. And mm-hmm. predestination is not, you know, it's not an optional thing for the for a Catholic to hold. That's right. Um, yeah. And so, so Thankfully. I wouldn't say, yeah, I wouldn't say that I was, you know, I certainly was not an Arminian, but yeah. uh, the predestination thing sort of made me squirm. And so oh, I, fascinating. Ended up, I, I ended so up So different kind from of, me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah. ended up reconciling it with this sort of middle knowledge idea. Yeah, that's sort good. Of like, yeah, you know, God's, yeah. God knows everything that we will do. And so sort of apportions to each according to what free choices God knows he will make before he makes them. Um mm-hmm. If it, maybe I've described that incorrectly, but uh, still sounds like open theism. But no, no one. Knows. Okay, people don't know Molinism that I understand. Yeah, I, I certainly don't. I've not read the original sources on yeah. this, but carry on. Uh, 
in a superficial a presentation yeah. thank you thank you in a superficial presentation of uh the fact patterns i was like oh the molinists sound right to me and yep. then i read this book by taylor patrick o'neill and i was yep. like oh actually Didn't i guess i'm a Bonyesian. Right. so he basically he basically changed my mind in one book and i think it's definitely a, That's a good great. book for you to check out yeah because ah, he goes into all this stuff like here's what aquinas says here's exactly what he means by this um and here's why the Bonyesians were closer to the, the truth and the molinists here's how to how to reconcile yeah. um so yeah. yeah, it was it was very interesting to me. Yeah, no, it's it's it is a fascinating debate. It's not it's not a debate that doesn't matter. Um, and and it is a debate to show that actually Thomas is underdetermined. Um, so Banyanism is not Thomism, um, mm. but it's not not Thomism. It's a develop it's a development of Thomism. Okay. Answering asking questions answering questions that he didn't ask about. It's not unlike constitutional law work, in the sense of um, when you have a case now that the Constitution didn't foresee. How do you go about doing that? And you could say the Banyensians are kind of the originalists yeah. um, in a way. And Molinists might be more, although I don't, you know, God, we know we hate these moral, you know, living constitutionalists. But <laughs> yeah. Molinists, I mean, Molina does introduce a distinction with middle knowledge um, that is new. Uh, okay. So you could say he's introducing a new thing. So he's kind of more on that on that other side, the moral reading kind. But it is a question, and it's but it's just good to see the how the tradition develops. And Banya's um, does that in the boys, DeSoto and others. But it's a great, mm-hmm. yeah, that's great, Patrick. Okay, I'll look, I'll look in that. Yeah, I'll send you a link as well to the book. Um, that's great. And if you're interested, I can connect you with him. Uh, he actually he'd be good for a, a guest planning, perhaps on oh, God's planning. So yeah. Um, so if you could if you could redo your journey into the church, is there anything you would do differently? There are certainly I things like this. Uh, yeah, I wish that I you know had read a few mm. a few books that I've since read yeah. that I think would have would have hastened my journey or perhaps even just sort of made it more more informed. You know, I certainly don't regret a thing about becoming Catholic, but there are some things that I just wish I knew in advance. So is there anything you would do differently? Yeah, no, this on is reflection. That's a really good question. Um, because I don't. Yeah, I maybe this is just like the. The philosopher, metaphysician in me is saying like, well, if I'd done anything differently, I wouldn't be me, and kind of like where I am, so I don't want to change that. <laughs> yeah, stuff. Fair. But um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, what? It's a tough one. I honestly, honestly, don't know if there was. I was coming up with. You mentioned this before, and I was trying to come up with what. Who would I? You know, who would I have talked to? Which I, which I would have done, um, to get there. And no, I, I, it seems to be, it's one of those things where providentially, you know, at the time you think you're going one way, but then you look back on something, you read into it and it seems like it, it all, there's a, there's a certain line to it. Now, I don't mm-hmm. think that's necessarily yeah. the case, but at least could be told narratologically that way. And all my steps were, would seem like the right, I wasn't flailing about at any point as far as I can tell. I wasn't lost. Oh yeah, I went and did this for a couple of years and I, I, it'd be cool if I hadn't wasted my time doing that person. Yeah. I did waste my time, plenty of time wasted. Um, but not in those kind of flail, none of the ways that I would take back, nor can I think of this would have saved me from, from any, any particular thing that would have helped getting in here or something. Yeah. I guess, no, I was going to say the only thing I wish I'd done is like, be better with languages, maybe, because that's a big part, mm. learning Latin and all that. Um, and I knew Greek, but and did some Hebrew, but but I wouldn't have done that if I was like, yeah, I wish I'd studied Latin when I was in um, Oxford instead of just Greek and Hebrew. Yeah. But right. who would, that would have been weird. Like, why would I have done that? That yeah. would have saved some time and been helpful in reading church and reading church traditional texts, but it's just, it's unrealistic. I wouldn't have, yeah, you know, yeah. wouldn't have done that. 
So no, sure. I I wish I had something like that. I don't have no regrets and no... Yeah, if you replay, it's like Nietzsche, you know, it was eternal return of the same. Do you want to live mm-hmm. your life such that everything you everything you do could be replayed with no change on it that you desired? Um, I, uh, yeah, I think that's in the large brushstrokes, broad brushstrokes of my conversion experience. I think that's probably, yeah, probably okay. Impressive, know? yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to make of the fact that I, after thinking about it, can't come up with anything I wish I had done. I don't, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or just a thing. No, I think that's just a thing. That's, um, I suppose it's good to not look back and realize you made so many blunders or that God was trying to pull you into the church and for so long you resisted it. You know, it's good to not have that upon reflection. But That's what people, um, I mean, people talk about, you know, just like uh, ordination or, I mean, joining an order, you know, or joining, becoming like, I, you know, I fought against this for so long. And I've never, yeah, I never... I've never really fought. I don't, I don't, maybe that's something, maybe that's just the story I tell now, but I've never, I've never got a sense of fighting anything like that. Well, so how about that for next question? How did you discern the Dominicans? You said you were almost a yeah. Jesuit. You, you you saw yourself potentially as an eventual Jesuit, but obviously you're not now. So how yeah, did you right. so, discern uh, the Dominicans? I knew I wanted to be, I mean, I got called, I felt called to the ministry when I was 15. So when I was in high school. Um, at that point, so you thought I'm going to be a Presbyterian pastor. Yeah, or, I went to, I remember yeah. going, I was at a Catholic school. So I went to like one of our religion teachers and said, Hey, I got this. I feel like I have this call to be a minister or something. He was a Catholic and he's a, I don't know how that goes. Um, okay. You know, but uh, who knows? So yeah. <laughs> Cause so he didn't I knew, know how to, he didn't know how to sort of. He didn't know what to do with it. He's like, I don't know who to tell you to go to or stuff. I don't <laughs> yeah. know any of this stuff. There's no was, director of formation. Yeah. No, like, you know, I, maybe you should go to this college instead of this college. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. But uh, so I knew I'd always want to become a priest. So becoming Catholic and becoming a priest were I had to disentangle them, of course, because they mm-hmm. are different questions, obviously. But they were very linked to me. It seemed if okay. I was going to become Catholic, I was going to. I felt like I was. Because it's not like you were God. married, had a family. Anything exactly. Like that. No, a miserable yeah. failure on that on those fronts. So um, <laughs> that's why I'm a religious priest. Um, but no, so the so I, priest priesthood just always seemed there. Um, and so I thought, but I wanted to be. I love teaching. Um, that's why we okay. love doing pastoral stuff. I'm really, as you might imagine, not any good at. Um, and so um, I did plenty of pastoral placements as a Protestant. And, uh, you know, I'm just not a good person. Um, but I'm working on it. Pray for me. And, uh, but I, I, pastor, I, felt, I felt a call to academic ministry or something and, and teaching. And so that meant a religious order, something like that. And I expected the Jesuits would be that. Um, and then so, so, and the community stuff. I always, I was always struck by C.S. Lewis's line where he said, I, there's nothing I enjoy more than the company of men's laughter. And something that always struck me, I think it's mere Christianity, or maybe it's in Four Loves. Uh, I forget, but it's, it, I, I just love being around in the company of, of, of friends. Um, doesn't have to be a billion, but I like, I like friendship. I think it's really important. And I've always loved community. Um, and I knew I couldn't be a priest alone. You know, it just, I, hats off to the diocesan priest. Those guys, the workhorses. Yeah. And to have to be, to do what they do, I cover for a, a priest, wonderful priest out in Wyoming during the summers yeah. and do, you know, for two weeks, just kind of do his gig. It's, it's a lonely life. Um, you know, I just didn't know, I wasn't strong enough. I don't, I'm not strong enough to do that. It's good to admit that. And so it would have, so a religious order made sense. And then it's just a question of which religious order. And although I have a Franciscan name, Franciscans never, True. never, yeah. never appealed to me on the, on the, on like the apostolate level, intellectually, mm-hmm. I think voluntarism and that sort of thing is the is is a necessary uh, sort of account but um but there was between jesuits and the dominicans and then yeah dominicans just seemed to fit and i mean i think the praying praying together because jesuits are kind of their own men too 
Um, but the Dominicans, Dominicans, we, you know, we like to be together. We enjoy each other's company. It does company. seem like, I mean, for, from the outside, and it seems like there are a lot more sort of lone wolf Jesuits out there and they have to than be. Dominicans. They have to really? be. They're trained that way um, because okay. they're, they have to be able to be at the moment's notice, go off on a mission or something and found, mm. you know, go off, be dropped somewhere by themselves and found a college and a church and a dissenting church and then like a soup kitchen. And they have to be able to say all gotcha. that themselves. And that's, we can't, we would just die, would wither, wither and die, yeah. you know, because how are we going to say the office back and forth with each other, the Psalms? You need at least two people. <laughs> That's <you know>? right. <laughs> so we're down to the House of Studies right now. It's usually about 80 Dominicans here. It's nice and strong. But uh, the, summer, the yeah. summer we're down to like four. And f- it's hard to do a Dominican community with less than four. You can do it, but yeah. it doesn't feel like Dominican life anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, that's the, the monastic. The ba- Dominicans have a nice balance between the active life in terms of the teaching and preaching and things, but also the, the deep contemplative life and the communal life. Uh, and it's just, it's perfect. I mean, I, I'm, yeah. it's, I'm blessed to be... Yeah, I'm blessed to be a Dominican. I think it's it, not everyone's called to it, of course, and there's plenty of great religious orders. But for me, the Dominicans have been a gift, uh, a gift and a godsend. That's amazing. Yeah, great. Yeah, I've thought about um, the uh, the lay Dominicans. Uh, I just love I love the Dominicans, and I love every Dominican charism, I read, yeah. and all the Dominicans that I meet. So um, you know, I've uh, I've thought about that and prayed about it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's talk. Uh, we said we would get to film stuff. Oh, great! Father. Let's do that. Um, Let's talk about film. So who, as a, this may be a softball question, especially since I emailed it to you in advance, but who's your favorite, uh, who's your favorite director today? Yeah. And the favorite film of his or hers that we can, we can yeah, chat yeah. about. Uh, so I love Denny Villeneuve. Um, I think that's how you pronounce okay. his name. I don't think I've ever seen a oh, film. Oh, really? Um, he, everything he does touches is great. The most recent film you'd probably say, you, you would know, and the people listening would be Dune. Um, part one. Okay, yeah, I, I haven't seen Dune. Dune yet. Okay, um, and and he's, uh, but my favorite, probably my favorite movie of, one of my favorite movies of all time is probably Blade Runner. Uh, so that's really Scott. But he did Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and mm-hmm. sequels almost never, never beat out the original one. Um, but he, his sequel is it's a bit like Dark Knight compared to the original Batman Begins. Yes. Batman Begins. Yep. Like Dark Knight is better, but you know you have to have the first one to have the second one. But it's kind of nature grace issue, maybe. Yeah. If you get that way. Um, and this is the same way. I mean, two, 2049 does what the original Blade Runner does. Um, and then it does it better. And then it adds another piece to it. And you're like, just stop. Just stop. It's too much. It's too beautiful. And his, his artistic style, his sense of timing and pacing, his aesthetic sensibilities um, are, are absolutely brilliant. His sound, his, I mean, the way he does camera angles, the way he does takes time watching people, the way he has enough action and things going around, and yet it's really focused on the character development and it's focused on the humanity. That's the key thing to me. That's why I'm a philosopher, I suppose, not a theologian, um, is the humanity, uh, the deep humanity that then opens up to the sacred humanity of Christ. He, he gets the humanity really well. Um, and that Blade Runner 2049 is, is an, extended, uh, an extended look at what it is to be human uh from a number of different angles but it's in this most beautiful account of it um a beautiful a beautiful account in terms of our aesthetic values to it so i like anything villeneuve does i'll watch um he's he's just hits it out of the park each time as far as i can tell that's awesome that's my experience with um uh terrence malick he's great too Uh, yeah, yeah everything he's fantastic. Is, and of course, he he studied in Oxford as well. Philosophy, I think. Well, yeah, um, I, we did an episode on him. him um, of course, he was he he translated uh, the essence of truth. I think Heidegger's. Oh, that's right. I did works. know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. he was a, no, he's he's a Heideggerian, um, and yep. uh, did not get finished the doctorate there. But um, 
no no fool no fool right his stuff is no, great no no yeah all. his stuff is it is for sure I thin, mean, red, um, thin red line i remember the summer that um there was there was a summer where there was a point where like two movies came out together that were the, basically the same but one of them was superior so like um the illusionist yeah. and prestige the magic movies yes. came out <laughs> yes and one of them you can watch again and again the other one you can't um and then i think the prestige is the good one right that's I right i was gonna up. say i should be it, careful at this point yeah the illusionist yeah. Is, is okay but after you see it once it's done whereas prestige yeah. is like let's step it up that's chris nolan yeah. he's great too right um, right and then, but same thing with, uh, same Private Ryan and Thin Red Line came out at basically the same time, I think the same summer, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong on that. Um, and I mean, there's just no competition. Yeah. Thin Red Line just blows that, it's one of my favorite movies, just blows yeah. any war movie out of the water. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Tree, Tree of Life was just so stunning to me. It has this, uh, mm-hmm. you've probably seen it, but it's like, a, it's like an almost three hour movie, right? It's so yep. long. Um, but Malik does these, like just these sweeping nature scenes yeah uh these extended extended shots i mean he does the same we just watched uh, about a month ago we watched a, a hidden life same thing yeah like you're in the alps there and you just have yep. this, these extended shots of the mountains um but there's this like 20 25 minute sequence set to uh i'm forgetting the classical piece but of the creation, creation. of the world that's basically. incredible yep. it's it's, it's incredible. so amazing it's like it's probably the best 20 minutes of cinema i've ever seen in my life yeah and there's no really... words it's just cinema just pure cinema yep. it's amazing no malik's great and it is it's when it's it's the um a good this is why movies i'm just going to throw in a plug for why why movies are important yeah um, let's do it is they beauty is important in life um and movies are are so art artistic we generally do still frame artist stuff so paintings and Mm -hmm. that and that's super important i love frangelico yeah yeah frangelico but i mean really even the modern guys especially i mean i'm a big senior sergeant fan and american Mm -hmm. impressionism i think they just nailed it and there's motion in them telling stories blah 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 yeah movies are are in a sense doing that in and of their nature so they're telling a a dramatic it's 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 drama and beauty so it's it's the two transcendentals the beautiful and the good together um which is hard to do two transcendental hard to do both at once um so it's why there's so very few good movies really good movies because it requires an incredible command of 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 deep important elements of reality but when they're good they're good because they the idea of the arts far as i can tell is to make you a better person it's that Mm -hmm. uh, rainer marie rilko when he says he has this it's a his poem about the torso of Apollo. So he's given this poem about the, the torso that's missing its arms, its head, and all this kind of thing he's talking about. It. And the last line is, you must change your life. You know, you must change your life. Like, that's the message of looking at this piece of art. And that's what um, good art does. And it's getting closer and closer to hum- humans. So st- still frames and paintings are one. But cinema is, like, closer to the drama of the human experience. So it can, again, influence us. Books are like this, too. Great literature. but we need as much help as possible to surround our life with with models of beauty and how to live the good life. And movies do that in a way that other cinema is, is an artistic form, like plays and theater. That you, if you lose it, you you miss out. You miss out on mm-hmm. this particular avenue way into the, into living the good life. Um, not to say again that many movies are good about this, and in fact, increasingly are awful, really awful, and actually deleterious to the good life. You know. Right. So sure. just like looking at bad paintings is deleterious to the good life. But in and of itself, there are some just beautiful films and uh, and they stick with one in the mind, the phantasms. Uh, and since they're actions, they have a little more purchase, you could say. Um, and that's very important in moral formation. Um, do you have an opinion on Breaking Bad, the television show? 
Uh, no, I don't. Uh, okay. I've never seen it. Um, okay. I feel bad. I feel bad about not seeing. I suppose, but um, but I haven't. What's your well? The problem with series it? is that they're uh, they're a big time commitment, right? So yeah. when you have like six seasons of something to watch, it just takes a lot more time than uh, watching one film in one evening. Yeah. But Breaking Bad is, uh, to my mind, the greatest TV show ever made. Um, okay. And That's I just think it's, I, I, I think it's fantastic. Uh, right. I can't say enough good things about it. But your point about art being something, being that which makes you a better person rings true with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Breaking Bad is that way. I think some people see it as sort of just a bleak drama mm-hmm. of human fallenness. And it, I guess it is a bleak drama of human fallenness, but it's it's uh, one told in such a way that emphasizes um, our will and the necessity of mm-hmm. exercising our will towards the good. Yeah. Compared with uh, another show currently going still, called Barry on HBO and Barry's about this. Um, it's kind of like a cynical, a cynical look at a, an assassin who's trying to change his careers and become an actor. Okay. And, uh, I've, I've not seen all of Barry. I've basically stopped watching it because I came to be convinced that it's not art Yeah. because Barry is unlike, unlike breaking bad, which I think is a sort of drama about the consequences of our choices. Barry is really just like a dark comedy about the guy who really has no agency. He just gets caught up in this spin of events that he can't control and has no, uh, no, has no ability to sort of, um, exercise his will out of, um, and so it ends up just being sort of a like gratuitous, uh, portrayal of this guy's descent. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, and, I mean, maybe, maybe the difference between, so part of the difference is that good art is aiming at, at outside of even itself, uh, mm-hmm. whereas bad art is aiming at itself. Yes. So, you know, yeah. bad art, whether it be a TV show, a movie or a piece of art or something is asking you to stare at it. It, it yeah. turns into an idol that you just that just draws all your attention to it. Whereas this is Jean-Luc Marion's, I suppose, uh, Catholic phenomenologist reflection. Um, a good art is iconic. It's not idolatrous. Um, Ooh, it drives it directs you through it to a higher thing. So even so even good art. When you're looking at it and clapping and thinking how amazing it is, it's because it's pointing you to something else. Like you say, Breaking yeah. Bad in itself, even though it might, even if it might have, like, be a bad, this is where bad can lead to good, you know? It might have, you might see via negativa, what you shouldn't do right. in a sense, it's directing you to that further thing. In a sense, yeah. both you and it are pointing to something higher, which obviously we want to think about in terms of God and transcending the absolute. Um, whereas bad art, just like bad humans, um, direct one inward this is augustine's mm-hmm. sense curved inward and just they're idolatrous in the sense that they direct your attention to them they say look at me look at me good art is saying look at me so that you can look at this yeah look at this through me and that's what right. i think i mean humans moral our, our life is to be pointing not to ourselves but to be to be dramatic figures playing out christ plays in ten thousand places so that people look to something else not i mean this is john the baptist to, to as well, right? I must decrease, so he must increase, because I'm 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 here to point to him. Perfect for today. We're chatting on uh, yeah, the nativity right. of Saint John the Baptist. That's so, right. Who's yeah. just fast? Yeah, he's fascinating uh, because he has every reason to dislike Jesus Christ, but he doesn't. Yeah, you know, um, which is great. Yeah, we my family and I talked about that. I have four kids, seven and under, and we talked about that a little bit at the breakfast table this morning. We read the account of um, the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth in Luke chapter one, and then the the account of his birth a few verses later uh, after the visitation. And um, and our prayer after that was just that, just like John the Baptist, we would be content to forego material possessions and um, and praise and instead just be able to point everyone that we meet to Jesus. Because yeah. that's exactly what he did. Yeah, I mean, you're right. He had, he had every 
motivation to feel eclipsed. He was yep. he was the big prophet guy in town, and then Jesus came along, but he instead proclaimed. Yeah, and not just this and not just the like the big prophet missed out his turn, but like this guy who's taken him over is one his own kin, and as Jesus himself mm. said, well, you can be accepted ever his except, younger cousin, right? Except yeah. as your own in your own household, and yeah. if you compare what the two of them are doing, Jesus looks like the liberal. He looks like mm. he's getting a little bit too close to the other side. He's not, he's eating with the wrong people. He's not fast. They're, his disciples aren't fasting. They're less rigorous. He's not going out to the, I mean, he did the 40 days. Yeah, in the desert, but he's not, he's not living out there wearing camel's no, hair. He's, and, he's sitting with sinners. He's doing things that John the Baptist isn't doing. So like John yeah. the Baptist has every reason to think actually this, you know, in our competition mode that here's this liberal guy who's ta- steering away from the messianic mission. But John the Baptist never has any sense of that. He's entirely yeah. he's entirely committed to him and that's i mean that's his his glory is that the, john the baptist's glory is that there's he, there's not a shred of pride in him and he's a good mirror for us in how i reading john the baptist and thinking how how prideful i am about nothing when this man yeah. about over 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 i'm prideful over nothing um mm-hmm. whereas this is the greatest man born among women yes and he's not prideful and he's no pride at all yeah that is pretty amazing yeah he's great that's a that's a great reflection on which to end Father Bonaventure, because we're out of time. Ah, but really so much fun, though, Zach. Thanks where so much. Can, uh, Pleasure. Yeah, well, let's do it again. Uh, if you're up for it, I'm definitely up for I'm it. When, where, where can people find out more of your work? <laughs> not nowhere. I mean, you know, I, I'm not like Gregory Pine or any of these guys who do this sort of stuff. You can listen to me on Godsplaining if you want. Yeah, don't but... sell yourself short. Your, your Godsplaining episodes are fantastic. Oh, whatever. It. You do what you can. So Godsplaining is one. Are, are there any other podcasts on which you appear with any regularity? No, no. I'm okay. just, I'm writing German I'm writing German treatises and doing things for the dissertation. Oh. So I'm trying to keep my head down those kind of things so that's pretty uh, impressive though. yeah well you know you do so you, you do said ri- you're writing german well trans- what, yeah what is, writing and translating and all this kind of stuff got it so thankfully got it has to be written in english it can be written in english which is great you just have to read all okay. the all the old 18th century fraktor german so. so in order to cite something do you have to translate it into german and then you can cite it is that how it goes <laughs> no luckily it's translating luckily it's just translating <laughs> out of the old-fashioned script um which looks it. weird uh it's the cool it's, it looks robust though when you read old german fraktor it's this that's a text to be taken seriously. You know, none of what, this, is, what is that? What it is looks that like you've probably fractor. seen it. It's like, it's got like thick, it's got the thick kind of edges on it. Anyone who thinks of okay. like uh, Frankfurt or something, you, you'd see when you see like some German beers have this kind of old. Oh yeah. Yeah. Old okay. Che- yes. Yeah. Reading whole pages, tons, like a thousand wow. page metaphysics textbooks in this script. And you just get used to reading it after a while. And, uh, and you just think this is serious. Cause when you read that text, yeah. it's like bold, you know, and you re- go back to reading regular font. And you think, oh, yeah. those Germans mean business. They do not fool around. Germans not fool around. What I didn't even ask you. Give me like a, if you can. I mean, it's I'm I'm sure it's a heady uh, metaphysical subject. But what's like a, a twenty second synopsis of your dissertation? Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> if I could tell you, give you a twenty second synopsis of it, I suppose it wouldn't be a dissertation because then it would be useful and, and make sense. That's true. Um, but it's yeah. it's mainly a a study of um, early modern German, so seventeenth century uh, metaphysics and and uh, moral treatises from the pietist tradition. So long Lutheran, basically Lutheran philosophers um, who are working in the pietist tradition right up to Kant. So it's it's the influence wow. of the philosophical pietists and their metaphysics on Kant's critical critical project. So that Kant Very Kant is actually not doing anything particularly new. He's actually just he's a neo-pietist in his in his philosophy. But uh but he he gets all the credit. He does. That's how it no goes, one, though. I, I'm guessing no one recognizes these guys you're writing about, right? Uh, that's right. That's why I have to translate yeah. for Fractor. Yeah. yeah. No one. No, well, there's like five people in the in the world that know these people. But um, wow, we'll, that's amazing. Ideally, you know, at the end of the day, we'll more people will know Zach. Yeah. Perfect. Love yeah. it. Just pick up a copy of the the thesis. Hopefully, you'll get it published uh, after after you. Um, that's the goal. Finish. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Great. 
Well, thank you so much, Father Bonaventure. I really it's appreciate pleasure. you taking the time. If anyone has questions for Father Bonaventure, I'd be happy to pass them along. So send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at credopodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you. Thank you.